Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. As always, thank you very much for listening. Before we begin today, I would like to briefly mention that I am, at the time of recording this episode, fighting off a minor head cold, so I'd like to apologize if my voice sounds a bit more nasal than usual. I'd also like to take this opportunity to remind you that, starting in October, I will be uploading monthly bonus content on Patreon that you can listen to in exchange for the pledge of $5 a month. Anyway, without further ado, let's begin. In the first episode of our new series on the Haitian Revolution, I provided a sketch of the social situation in the French colony of Saint-Domingue, modern Haiti, on the eve of the French Revolution. Saint-Domingue was a society of contradictions, paradoxes, and hypocrisy of the highest order. In short, there were four classes of people who lived in Saint-Domingue, who were distinguished from one another on the basis of racial heritage, social standing, and economic status. At the bottom of that pyramid that was Saint-Domingue society were the slaves. These were people who spent their entire lives in chains. They were considered property of their masters and were brutally exploited for their labor. They died at astounding rates as they were subjected to disease, lack of nutrition, poor living conditions, and abuse, both physical and psychological, from their masters. Crucially, however, the slave population of Saint-Domingue outnumbered all other groups combined by a ratio of more than two to one. Their masters were the pinnacle of Saint-Domingue society, the Big Whites, as they came to be called by historians. The Big Whites were the owners and managers of Saint-Domingue's numerous plantations of sugar, coffee, and indigo. The Big Whites were obsessed with defending their power, privilege, and wealth from all the other social classes, and thus they worked to keep their counterparts the small whites poor, the people of color disenfranchised, and the slaves enslaved. They also had a bit of an antagonistic relationship with the metropolitan government, based in Paris, which they viewed as placing unacceptable restrictions on their political autonomy. A great many of the big whites, at least those whose fortunes weren't directly tied up with the institution of the monarchy, were beginning to harbor ideas that perhaps Saint-Domingue's best interests might be served better under a different colonial power, or perhaps on their own, independent from Europe. Then we have the so-called small whites, these were the lower and middle-class denizens of Saint-Domingue's urban centers. For most small whites, the only advantages they had in life were their skin tone and their ancestry. Most of these small whites were lower-class Europeans, the likes of whom would go on to be known as the sans-culottes, who had come to Saint-Domingue seeking fame and fortune. The dream was to join the ranks of the big whites, to own a plantation or multiple plantations, and, upon having amassed a decent-sized fortune, to return to Europe as nouveau riche bourgeoisie. As many of these men quickly found out, this was not a task easily accomplished. Many found themselves bankrupted by failed economic ventures. With no property or family to speak of back in Europe, many chose to remain in Saint-Domingue, or otherwise found themselves financially unable to return. Whatever the case, these men decided to take up various trades to get by. They became the small-time merchants, sailors, craftsmen, artisans, day laborers, and wage workers of Saint-Domingue's cities. And finally, somewhere in the middle of it all, were the free people of color. The result of unions between people of African and European descent, typically white men and black women, the free people of color who found their ways from slavery to freedom through numerous avenues would, over generations, explode in numbers. And, as they did so, many of them accrued decent-sized fortunes of their own. By the eve of the revolution, they had achieved, as most historians claim, 
near economic parity with the colony's white population. This both terrified and enraged the whites, both big and small. And so the colonial administration lobbied by the planter class were to disallow the free people of color all the civil and political rights that were enjoyed by whites of their same economic standing. And, as one could imagine, there was a mutual hatred of the other classes shared by each of them. Each group of people just described, for reasons of their own, despised the others. Saint-Domingue, in other words, was especially ripe for revolution by the time the fateful year of 1789 came around. Why is the year 1789 so important to Haitian history, I'm sure many of you are wondering. After all, the Haitian Revolution is the topic of this series, and it didn't officially kick off until the slave revolt of August 1791. Historians debate the extent to which the French Revolution influenced events in Saint-Domingue. Some hold that the Haitian Revolution would not have occurred at all without the French. Others maintain that the Haitian Revolution was inevitable, and would have occurred at some point regardless. I, of course, think the truth lies somewhere in between. It should be uncontroversial to state that events in metropolitan France tended to influence the course of events in Saint-Domingue, and vice versa, and that while the two revolutions would eventually diverge onto very different paths, in the beginning, the two were practically inextricable from one another. In short, it is practically impossible to tell the story of the Haitian Revolution without also telling a bit of the story of the French Revolution. And it is for that reason that the next segment of this episode will be devoted to recounting the origins and early course of the French Revolution. Late in the year 1788, Louis XVI, King of France, convened the Estates General for the first time in over a century to help him resolve the ongoing financial crisis the kingdom was undergoing, thanks, in large part, to the financial support it had lent the Americans in their revolution against the British. The Estates General was divided among three distinct estates, or classes, the clergy, who made up the first estate, the nobility, who made up the second estate, and the commoners, i.e. everyone else, who made up the third estate. The members of the first two estates made up less than 2% of France's total population, but monopolized two-thirds of their representation in the Estates General, and it was this unequal distribution of power that would eventually serve as the catalyst for revolution. The Estates General might be thought of as analogous to the British Parliament or the United States Congress, but such comparisons are not exactly apt. Unlike those bodies, the Estates General did not have the authority to legislate, only to advise the king on certain matters by presenting him with petitions and proffering advice. Still, the convening of the Estates General provided the subjects of the Kingdom of France with a once-in-a-century opportunity to participate, however indirectly, in the government and administration of the country. Since the reign of Louis XVI's great-great-great-grandfather, the Sun King, Louis XIV, France had been governed along the principles of absolutism, a political ideology which held that the monarch should hold supreme, God-given authority, and that his or her power should not be constrained by such things as legislatures and constitutions. However, a powerful countercurrent of political thought had come into existence in the early 18th century that questioned this doctrine. This intellectual movement was known as the Enlightenment. Enlightenment thinkers believed that sovereignty, rather than resting in the person of the monarch, instead originated from the people themselves. They tended to believe that every human being was born with natural and inalienable rights, and as such, deserved at least some sort of say in how they should be allowed to live their lives, and how they should be governed. Exactly how much say people deserved in such matters was a matter of debate, but nevertheless, 
powerful ideas of democracy and personal liberty took root among the educated classes of Europe, and, crucially, in Europe's colonial outposts. Enlightenment thinkers had their own thoughts on slavery, and began to analyze the institution with a rather critical lens. Prominent Enlightenment philosophers such as Montesquieu and Voltaire took up the pen to criticize slavery as a cruel and unjust institution that was entirely incompatible with the ideals of their movement. But while Enlightenment thought provided intellectuals with a paradigm by which they could criticize slavery, the Enlightenment also laid the intellectual foundations for what is known as scientific racism, the belief that the various races of humankind were actually different species altogether, a belief that would be used to justify racist institutions such as slavery and colonialism in the future. A prime example of the contradictions of Enlightenment thought as it pertained to matters of race and slavery can be found in the writings of one of its most prominent thinkers, François-Marie Arouet, better known by his pen name, Voltaire. In Voltaire's most celebrated work, The Candide, the protagonist, while traveling in Dutch Suriname, encounters a slave on the side of the road. The slave was in a decrepit state, missing both his left hand and right leg, and clad only in a tattered loincloth. Voltaire quotes this slave as saying, quote, Two loincloths a year, that's all the clothes we get. When we work in the sugar factories and get a finger cut in the grinding mill, they cut off our hand. When we try to run away, they cut off a leg. I found myself in both situations. It is the price of the sugar that you eat in Europe. End quote. A powerful indictment of slavery and its cruelties, no doubt, but, despite his principled opposition to slavery, Voltaire still held beliefs that today read as shockingly racist. Here I quote from an essay of his written in 1755, quote, The Negro race is a different species of men from our own, as the race of spaniels is different from greyhounds. Their black wool does not resemble our hair at all, and one can say that, if their intelligence is not of a different nature to our own, it is much inferior. They are not able to concentrate very much. They calculate little, and do not seem ready for either the advantages or the abuses of our philosophy. They come from the same part of Africa as do elephants and monkeys. They believe that they are born in Guinea to be sold to the whites and to serve them." End quote. It is from this strain of Enlightenment thought that France's first explicitly abolitionist political group was formed, the Society of the Friends of the Blacks. Founded in 1788, the Society of the Friends of the Blacks was only a year old at the outbreak of revolution in France. It was founded by a journalist named Jacques-Pierre Brissot, who was in contact with, and took inspiration from, similar political movements in Britain and the United States. France, unlike Britain and the United States, lacked a large, popular abolitionist movement, and the nature of the society reflected this. It was a small, elite group, but... What the society lacked in numbers, it made up for in influence, as it would eventually count among its members such influential revolutionary figures as the Marquis de Lafayette, the Comte de Mirabeau, and the Abbé Gregoire. The society did not advocate for the immediate abolition of slavery and the immediate emancipation of all slaves. Such a decision was seen as having potentially disastrous consequences. Instead, the society advocated for a gradual phasing out of slavery, beginning with the abolition of the Atlantic slave trade, followed by the gradual emancipation of all slaves in the Americas. Their more moderate aims reflected a general fear of slave revolt, which was an outcome practically no one, both critics and proponents of slavery alike, desired. 
The specter of slave revolt was constantly invoked by said proponents as a reason to keep the coercive regime of slavery in the colonies intact, and by critics as a reason to eliminate the institution, however gradually. One of the most effective uses of this rhetorical technique can be found in the seminal writing of one Catholic priest named Guillaume Thomas Francois Reynal, better known as the Abbe Reynal. Reynal was one of the earliest and fiercest critics of slavery in France. In 1770, he anonymously published a massive book with the fittingly long title, Philosophical and Political History of the Establishments and Commerce of the Europeans in the Two Indies. Intended as an encyclopedia to educate the French public on the matter of the colonies, the history of the two Indies contains much invective against slavery, and warns of the danger of the slaves rising up in revolt. Its most famous and enduring passage reads, quote, So, nations of Europe, if it is only self-interest that motivates your soul, listen to me again. Your slaves do not need your generosity or your advice to smash the sacrilegious yoke that oppresses them. Nature's voice is louder than that of philosophy or self-interest. There already exist colonies of runaway blacks, maroons, protected from your attacks by their own strength. These lightning flashes herald a thunderclap. The slaves lack only a leader brave enough to lead them to vengeance and carnage. Where is he, this great man, whom nature owes her tormented and oppressed children? He will appear, have no doubt. He will come bearing the standard of liberty, Spanish, Portuguese, English, French, Dutch, all tyrants will fall prey to their fire and sword. The fields of America will become drunk on the blood they have waited for so long, and the bones of so many victims that have piled up for three centuries will quiver with delight. The old world and the new will join in applause, and everywhere people will bless the name of this hero who has reestablished the rights of the human race." End quote. At some point in his life, a slave in Saint-Domingue by the name of Toussaint Breda would read the Abbé Renal's words. Little did the world know that he would eventually become this hero that the Abbé Renal was prophesying. We'll talk plenty more about this Toussaint Breda, or Toussaint Louverture, as he would come to be known. Six years after the publishing of The History of the Two Indies, another work prophesying the future successes of the Haitian Revolution was published written by a man named Louis-Sébastien Mercier and entitled The Year 2044, A Dream If There Ever Was One. This work tells the story of a man who awakens from a coma in the titular year. Upon awakening, he discovers a massive statue, which he described thusly, quote, It was the figure of an American raised upon a pedestal. His head was bare, his eyes expressed a haughty courage, his attitude was noble and commanding, and his arm was extended and pointing to the shattered remains of twenty scepters which lay at his feet. Over the pedestal, this inscription was engraven, To the Avenger of the New World. End quote. It is worth noting that such literary attacks on the institution of slavery were quite limited in their influence on public discourse. French society at large tolerated the existence of slavery given that a massive sector of the French economy depended on the revenues generated by the slave economy. It was this simple fact that led most people in the metropole, however much they might have recoiled at reports coming in from the New World about the horrors of slavery there, to tolerate the institution as a necessary evil. Here I believe it is worth restating on no uncertain terms exactly how important Saint-Domingue was to the French economy at this time. 
Historian C.L.R. James wrote of Saint-Domingue as of 1789 as the most profitable colony in world history up to that point. Laurent Dubois wrote that Saint-Domingue was the centerpiece of the Atlantic slave economy. On the eve of the revolution, Saint-Domingue exported more sugar, both raw and refined, than Jamaica, Cuba, and Brazil combined, as well as half the world's coffee. Trade from Saint-Domingue accounted for 11 million pounds as of 1798, which converts roughly to about 100 billion US dollars in modern-day currency. For context, the value of all export trade in the French Empire at this time was worth 17 million pounds. The livelihoods of a massive portion of the population of metropolitan France depended on the continued commerce with Saint-Domingue. Merchants, shipbuilders, financiers, sugar refiners, and countless others not to mention the growing class of absentee landlords who owned property in Saint-Domingue. The link between the slave economy and the French Revolution itself has been well documented. The rise of the bourgeoisie in France, who would take center stage during the Revolution, was made possible in large part due to these profits generated by slave labor. Of the 1,000 members who made up the Revolutionary National Assembly in 1789, 150 of them owned property in Saint-Domingue, and the fortunes of many others were likely tied up in the slave economy as well. It is a great irony of history that the revolution that would do so much to further the cause of universal human rights came about partially as a result of the exploitation and suffering of millions. Anyway, back to the narrative. When the news that the States General was to be convened the following year, the big white colonists of Saint-Domingue greeted this news with a mixture of apprehension and optimism. Optimism because the Estates General provided them with an opportunity to make their voices heard in the Metropole, and apprehension because they feared the ramifications that this action might have. They were right to be afraid. The people of each estate drew up lists of grievances known in French as the Cahier de Doléances. These lists of grievances were then given to representatives in the Estates General, who would then pass them on to the king. Lists of grievances poured into Paris from every corner of metropolitan France. Remarkably, about 50 of these lists called for the abolition of slavery, but lists mentioning slavery were relatively few in number compared to the total number of lists received by the representatives of the Third Estate. Meanwhile, a group of wealthy planters met in Paris in advance of the convening of the Estates General. They petitioned the government to allow the colony some degree of representation in the Estates General. When this request was denied, they scaled back their demands a bit, and requested that the colonies be allowed to form their own representative assemblies, like those that already existed in British colonies. This request was also denied. Feeling as though they had no other recourse, when the Estates General finally convened in June 1789, 17 delegates representing Saint-Domingue arrived uninvited and demanded to be admitted to the assembly as members of the Third Estate. They invoked the relatively recent American Revolution as an example of the consequences of not allowing representation for colonial subjects. This line of argument seems to have worked in their favor, and the Saint-Domingue representatives were granted provisional admission to the Estates General, but they were not, however, given full voting rights. Once the Estates General was underway, the Third Estate inevitably ran into conflict with the King and the other two Estates. Given the nature of the Estates General, it was possible for the Third Estate to be outvoted by the First and Second, whose interests were more often than not united. The representatives of the Third Estate demanded that voting be conducted by head rather than by estate. This was only fair, 
as they saw themselves as representing the vast majority of the country, while the other states represented much more narrow interests. In the face of intransigence from the king and the other two estates, on June 20th, the representatives of the third estate broke off from the rest of the group and convened in a tennis court. There, they declared themselves to be the true representatives of the people of France and changed their name to the National Assembly, and that, as the true representatives of the people of France, they would never adjourn, not even under the threat of force. The 17 representatives from Saint-Domingue were present for this seminal event, which has gone down in history as the Tennis Court Oath. The other members of the National Assembly were more than happy for the support of the Saint-Domingue representatives, and so they welcomed them into the National Assembly with open arms. This was a milestone in the history of European colonialism, being the first time that colonial representatives were allowed admittance to a representative body in the metropole. The representatives from Saint-Domingue were one step closer to achieving their goals, and they intended to take full advantage of this revolutionary moment to further their own ends. Not everyone in the new National Assembly was willing to welcome the Saint-Domingue representatives unconditionally, however. For one, the Society of the Friends of the Blacks also recognized the potential in this revolutionary movement to advance their aims, and, in the raucous debates of the National Assembly, they launched sporadic attacks against the evils of slavery. The Comte de Mirabeau, an early revolutionary leader who would one day become a member of the Society of the Friends of the Blacks, denounced the Saint-Domingue representatives as hypocrites. He pointed out that the Saint-Domingue representatives claimed to be representing the entire population of the colony, and yet their ranks did not reflect this, as there was not a single person of African descent among them. Mirabeau went on, quote, You claim representation proportionate to the number of inhabitants. The free blacks are proprietors and taxpayers, and yet they have not been allowed to vote. And as for the slaves, either they are men or they are not. If the colonists consider them to be men, let them free them, and make them electors, and eligible for seats. If the contrary is the case, have we, in appointing deputies according to the population of France, taken into consideration the number of our horses and mules as well? End quote. This speech of Mirabeau's was a powerful indictment of the hypocrisy of the big whites, and of the injustice of their institutions. But ultimately, the issue at hand was not the existence of slavery, but how many representatives Saint-Domingue should be allowed. In the end, a compromise was reached, whereby Saint-Domingue was only allowed six deputies as opposed to the 17 that they originally began with. Mirabeau's screed against these deputies from Saint-Domingue represented the most the question of slavery was brought up in these early heady days of the revolution. As I stated earlier, many of the deputies of the 1789 National Assembly had their fortunes tied up in the colonial trade. These deputies were committed, at least tacitly, to maintaining slavery, and any discussions of questions regarding slavery or the colonies were tactfully sidestepped. Some deputies were dedicated more to the maintenance of slavery than others. The deputies from Saint-Domingue, who were uniformly big white plantation owners, joined forces with a group of absentee landlords, influential merchants from France's port cities, and others whose lives and livelihoods depended on the profits generated by slaves. Together, these men formed a political organization known as the Masayak Club. These members of the Masayak Club by no means formed a united front on all issues. Those who actually lived in Saint-Domingue wanted to leverage the club's influence into abolishing the exclusive, the policy that mandated that France's colonies only be allowed to conduct trade with France itself. Those who lived in the metropole, on the other hand, benefited financially from the exclusive, and therefore had no desire to see it done away with. 
But despite these and other differences, the members of the Mosaic Club were determined to prevent any and all discussion of the slavery question in the National Assembly, and, barring that, to defend slavery against its detractors in the Society of the Friends of the Blacks. The Mosaic Club, with its larger numbers and immense wealth, formed a powerful political lobby, and they were largely successful in their goals, at least at first. Any discussion of the slave question was shot down on the basis that any attempt to interfere with the institution would result in a second, more dangerous revolution in the colonies. On July 11, 1789, the king dismissed the popular finance minister Jacques Necker. Necker, it merits mentioning, was himself an opponent of slavery, despite the fact that his family owned property in the West Indies. The dismissal of Necker was interpreted by the nascent revolutionaries as a sign that the king was preparing to strike back and to disperse the National Assembly by force. The people of Paris took to the streets, and, three days later, on July 14th, a mob stormed the Bastille prison in the center of the city that served as a powerful symbol of the tyranny of the monarchy. The French Revolution had begun in earnest. News of the revolutionary events in France reached Saint-Domingue some three weeks or so later. The Big Whites, given their many grievances against the metropolitan government and royal bureaucracy, wasted no time in throwing their support behind their revolutionary cousins in the metropole. En masse, they adopted the tricolor cockade, a ribbon of red, white, and blue that was a popular symbol of the revolution back in Paris. However, their enthusiasm for revolution was not matched by their representatives in the National Assembly, who correctly recognized the potential danger these events posed for Saint-Domingue. One representative from Saint-Domingue wrote an impassioned warning to his counterparts back home, quote, Gentlemen and dear compatriots, people here are drunk with liberty. A society of zealots that has taken the name the Friends of the Blacks openly attacks us in its publications. It is just waiting for a favorable moment to create an anti-slavery explosion. If we just mention the word, that might be enough for them to demand the emancipation of our slaves. Our fear of this forces us to reluctantly keep silent. The time is not right to ask the National Assembly to collaborate with us in preventing the danger that threatens. It is up to you, gentlemen, to decide the course to follow in such a critical situation. The peril is great, and it is eminent. Watch over our safety, but do so with prudence. We must not lose our heads. Let us not awaken the enemy, but do not be taken by surprise. The National Assembly is too preoccupied with the internal affairs of the kingdom to be able to think about us. We are warning Americans everywhere to fly to the defense of their country. Take the precautions that your wisdom suggests to you. Pay close attention to people and their actions. Arrest suspicious persons. Seize writings in which the word freedom even appears. Redouble your guard over your plantations, towns, and villages. Be suspicious of those who arrive from Europe. The spirit of the time is opposed to us in this matter. Be of good courage, dear compatriots. The time will surely come when we can do better. We must let tempers cool down, for this crisis will not last. End quote. Two weeks after this letter was written, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen was published. One of the earliest declarations of universal human rights, the first article of the Declaration reads, in part, quote, Men are born and remain free and equal in rights. End quote. The implications of such a document greatly concerned the Big Whites, and, sure enough, they took the advice given to them and began to crack down on revolutionary rhetoric. They attempted to lock down the country, but it was no use. They could hardly prevent any and all travel from the metropole, and word of the revolutionary developments in Paris inevitably made its way to Saint-Domingue. 
It came by way of sailors, petty merchants and soldiers, who all spoke in excited tones of their hopes for the revolution. They hurled invective at the big whites of Saint-Domingue, who were the holders of power and privilege, just like the aristocrats and noblemen back home. This sort of talk was inevitably overheard by slaves, who lived and worked in the port towns of Saint-Domingue, who then used their social networks to spread word to their fellow slaves on the plantation. Literate domestic slaves would have read smuggled revolutionary literature to their illiterate counterparts. Inevitably, revolutionary rhetoric quickly proliferated among the slaves of Saint-Domingue. The greatest fear of all Saint-Domingue colonists was one step closer to being realized. As in metropolitan France, each group of people in Saint-Domingue sought to take advantage of this revolutionary moment in history and channel it towards their own respective ends. For the small whites who, like their metropolitan counterparts who fought with the royalists on the streets of Paris, the revolution presented them with an opportunity to chip away at the power and wealth of the big whites, whom they saw as being analogous to the aristocrats of France. For the enslaved, the revolutionary ideals of liberty, equality, and fraternity had a much more immediate meaning. The ideals laid out in the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen meant freedom from bondage and exploitation, the freedom to decide for themselves the nature of their lives and labor. The free people of color, having been for the past several decades subjected to a discriminatory legal regime, saw in the revolution an opportunity to win the civil and political rights they had been so unfairly denied by the big whites. The big whites, as we have seen, were quite wary of all this talk of the rights of man and citizen. Their ideals were more in line with the American Revolution than that of France. They wished to take advantage of the political discord in the metropole to secure for the colony a greater deal of autonomy, and for the colony to eliminate the exclusive, which they saw as an unacceptable imposition on them by the metropolitan government. In other words, the big whites sought to secure even more power and wealth for themselves. They emphatically did not wish to enact wide-ranging social reforms, as they saw such actions as leading to potential disaster. Being hostile as they were to the interests of the slaves and to the interests of the royalists represented in Saint-Domingue by the colonial bureaucracy, the big whites were faced with a decision. They needed to forge an alliance with at least one of the two other groups of free people in the colony if they hoped to accomplish their ends. But the question was, do they align with the free people of color, with whom they had in common the distinction of being property owners and the shared interest in defending said property? Or do they seek out the allegiance of the small whites, with whom they had in common the privilege of skin color? The big whites chose to do the latter of the two. Having cowed the colonial administration into submission through random acts of violence in the cities, the small whites had secured permission from them to form a colonial assembly. The colonial administrators had hoped that this would be a short-term solution, but the small whites were determined to make it a permanent one. Elections for the new colonial assembly were held in February 1790. The rights to vote and run for office were guaranteed to all whites who had lived in the colony for at least one year. There was no property requirement. This, Dubois wrote, was a democratization based on racism, as free people of color were still denied the right to vote. This colonial assembly was based out of the town of St. Mark, a relatively small and hitherto insignificant town in Saint-Domingue's western province. Dubbed by C.L.R. James as the Patriots, 
The members of the Assembly of St. Mark almost immediately began to agitate for increased political autonomy, and there were even murmurings of declaring independence from France. Meanwhile, a parallel institution was forming to the north. In the weeks immediately preceding the convening of the Estates General, a provisional assembly had been formed in the town of Le Cap, without permission of the colonial government, to collaborate with the representatives in Paris to secure representation and political autonomy for the colony. The makeup of this provisional assembly of the north was much different from that of the one based in St. Mark. While the St. Mark assembly was mostly made up of small-time coffee and indigo planters, as well as their small white allies from the cities, the Provisional Assembly of the North consisted almost entirely of the privileged Big Whites, owners of large sugar plantations, well-connected lawyers, and wealthy merchants, for whom a break with France would prove absolutely disastrous. So the Big Whites of the Northern Provisional Assembly broke with the Colonial Assembly in St. Mark. Conflict between the revolutionaries and the reactionaries of Saint-Domingue's white population was imminent. All the while, the free people of color attempted to find their place in the new equation of political life in revolutionary Saint-Domingue. As yet unwilling to stand in solidarity with the enslaved and victimized by the racist attacks of the small white population, many felt that they had little choice but to side with the big whites, who, despite being responsible for their disenfranchisement, shared with them a common distinction of property. It was a common belief among the free people of color that, if they were to support the Big Whites in this time of crisis, the Big Whites would, in exchange, grant them the rights which had been withheld from them for so long. To this end, in September 1789, a delegation of free people of color traveled to Paris to present some version of this proposal to the Massayac Club. The men of the Massayac Club, however, would hear none of it, while some, such as the author of that letter I quoted at length earlier, believed that an alliance with the free people of color was necessary to maintain order in the colony, the vast majority were of the opinion that granting rights to the free people of color would be political suicide. As C.L.R. James put it, quote, rights for the mulattoes today, it would be rights for the slaves tomorrow, end quote. Note that a mulatto is an antiquated term for an individual of mixed race that is widely considered to be offensive in the modern day. Having written his seminal account of the Haitian Revolution, the Black Jacobins, before the term people of color had come into common parlance, C.L.R. James uses the term mulatto exclusively. The term also might appear in other direct quotes coming from primary sources of this era. Just know that as a person of mixed heritage myself, I mean absolutely no offense in using this term. Anyway, the Free People of Color's request to the Masayak Club in September 1799 was flatly denied. The Free People of Color did, for the most part, find the people of metropolitan France sympathetic to their demands couching their demands in terms from the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, the free people of color argued that, as property owners and taxpayers, there was simply no reason why they should be excluded from citizenship. They found natural allies among the Society of the Friends of the Blacks. Their most vocal ally was the Abbé Grégoire, a clergyman and deputy of the National Assembly, who was a fierce proponent of universalism. Many a time, Grégoire attempted to raise the issue of the rights of the free people of color in the National Assembly, but almost every time he was shouted down, the powerful lobby of the Masayak Club would tolerate no such discussion. Seeking to relegate the issue to the back rooms, it was proposed that a separate committee be formed to deal with issues regarding the colonies. When it was formed, this committee was dominated by men of the Masayak Club. They argued that the laws of the metropole should not necessarily be applied directly to the colonies. 
Instead, they proposed a compromise that all colonial citizens aged 25 and older who met certain property requirements be allowed to vote. Known as the Decree of March 8th, the phrasing was intentionally left vague as a sop to the free people of color and the society of the Friends of the Blacks. The March 8th decree stipulated that all citizens who met the requirements would be able to vote. But who was and who was not considered a citizen? This was a question fiercely debated in the assembly. The Abbé Gregoire stated on no uncertain terms that he considered the free people of color to be full citizens, but the members of the Masayak Club knew that the colonial authorities would not share Gregoire's interpretation of the decree. Meanwhile, back in Saint-Domingue, tensions were rising between the different factions of free men in the colony. The free people of color searched in vain for allies among the white colonists. The big whites, with whom they had in common the distinction of being property owners, refused to have anything to do with them. Meanwhile, the small whites across the colony carried out hateful attacks on free people of color, hoping to confiscate their property and redistribute their wealth. Those who tried to speak out against this abuse were lynched by angry mobs of disaffected whites. These attacks by the revolutionary small whites drove the free people of color right into the arms of the colonial bureaucracy. The colonial administration, in a similarly desperate situation, was more than happy to have their allegiance. They were prepared to make all sorts of concessions to them in order to win them over to their side. And so it was that, for the time being at least, the free people of color joined the forces of counter-revolution and Saint-Domingue. When the news of the decree of March 8th reached the colony, the free people of color lobbied their allies in the colonial administration to enforce the decree according to their interpretation, which is to say that they read the decree as granting them full political rights. But the matter was temporarily out of the hands of the colonial administration. Real political power in the colony rested with the colonial assemblies of St. Mark and Le Cap. The assembly of St. Mark took umbrage with the decree of March 8th. Its members swore that they would never share rights with a, quote, bastard and degenerate race, end quote. In response to the St. Mark assembly's refusal to enact the decree of March 8th, the colonial administration, with the backing of the free people of color, dispatched two separate armies to converge on St. Mark and disperse the assembly. As the soldiers marched on the assembly, some 80 or so of its members fled, boarded a ship in the harbor known as the Leopard, the crew of which was sympathetic to their cause. They decided to escape to France, where they would plead their case before the National Assembly. Now realizing that he could not secure rights for his people through the avenue of the National Assembly, one free man of color, a man named Vincent Auger, decided to take matters into his own hands. Auger was a one member of the delegation that had been sent to Paris to plead the case of the free people of color to the Masayak Club, and then before the National Assembly. In September 1789, Auger addressed the Masayak Club, quote, As a property owner from the Le Cap region of Saint-Domingue and a native of the island, I come to ask the Assembly to admit me to its discussion. I have no other aim than to collaborate with it in the preservation of our property and to avoid the disaster that now threatens us. To bring about this happy revolution, the flame of reason is not enough. The flame of reason must blend its brightness with the gentleness of the other, so that their union may produce a uniform, fierce, and pure light that will enlighten minds and inflame hearts. But gentlemen, this word liberty, that can only be uttered with enthusiasm, this word that embodies all happiness, if only because it seems to make us forget the harm that we have suffered for centuries, this liberty, the greatest of possessions, is the primary one. Is it made for all men? I believe so. Should it be given to all men? Again, I believe so. But how should it be given? 
at what period, and under what conditions? This, gentlemen, is the greatest and most important of all questions. It concerns America, Africa, France, and all of Europe. It is the primary reason, gentlemen, behind my request that you hear me. If the most prompt and effective measures are taken, if firmness, courage, and consistency do not animate us all, if we do not quickly bundle together all our abilities, our means, and our efforts, if we sleep for an instant on the edge of the abyss, let us tremble at the moment of our waking. Blood will flow, our property invaded, the fruits of our labor destroyed, and our homes will be burned. Our neighbors, our friends, our wives, our children will be slaughtered and mutilated. The slaves will raise the standard of revolt. These islands will become no more than a vast and fateful inferno. With commerce destroyed, France will receive a mortal wound, and a multitude of decent citizens will be impoverished and ruined. We will have lost everything. But, gentlemen, there is still time to avert the disaster. If the Assembly wishes to admit me, if it authorizes me to draw up and to submit to it my plan, I will do so with pleasure, and even gratitude, and perhaps I will be able to contribute to warding off the storm that rumbles above all our heads. If my project is adopted, I propose to go and carry it out myself, to watch over the public safety under your orders. If I risk my personal interest, my life is a sacrifice I owe the public good, and I make it willingly." End quote. In essence, what Auger was proposing here was an alliance of Saint-Domingue property owners against the threat of slave revolt. If the big whites were willing to throw their support behind the free people of color's struggle for civil and political rights, the free people of color would have returned the favor by assisting them in keeping the colony's massive slave population down. Doubtless, some of those in attendance were impressed by the eloquence of Auger's speech, as they believed that those of African descent were possessed of inferior intelligence. But, however much they might have admired Auger for this, they were not moved to action. The question of rights for the free people of color was, to them, not a question at all. They refused to even contemplate it. What's more, the members of the Masayak Club seemed to have interpreted Auger's invocation of slave revolt as a veiled threat, and so they refused to hear him speak further. And so it was that, by mid-1790, Vincent Auger, fed up with the intransigence of the National Assembly and the Masayak Club, resolved to take matters into his own hands. He would travel to Saint-Domingue and, by force of arms, make the colonial administration enact his interpretation of the March 8th decree, which guaranteed the franchise to the free people of color. Despite the Masayak Club's best efforts to prevent all people of African ancestry from leaving France, Auger slipped out of the country and traveled first to Britain, where he, using his network of contacts in the abolitionist movement there, was able to acquire multiple letters of credit and a sizable sum of money, which he then took with him to the United States to purchase weapons and ammunition. He took this material with him back to Saint-Domingue. He arrived at his hometown of Dondon sometime in October 1790. There, Auger found hundreds of enthusiastic supporters. With the help of one Jean-Baptiste Chavanet, another free man of color and veteran of the Siege of Savannah, Auger was able to recruit and arm a little under 1,000 men. With the rebel army now backing his words, Auger once again wrote to the Provisional Assembly in Le Cap, demanding for the rights of him and his fellow free people of color to be recognized according to the March 8th decree. They responded by dispatching militiamen to arrest them, despite the fact that they had not yet committed any crime, aside from asking for their rights to be recognized. Auger and Chavanne's rebels fought back well, managing to win a few initial skirmishes, but eventually, their inferior numbers and limited training prevented them from being able to hold out for very long. 
Forced into a corner, Auger made one last, desperate attack on Le Cap, but he and his men were beaten back. Defeated, Auger, Chavanet, and what few men would follow them still, escaped into Spanish Santo Domingo. However, the Spanish authorities captured them and extradited them back to Le Cap. For their crimes, Auger and his compatriots were subjected to prolonged torture by their French captors. They were bound to wheels and had their limbs slowly and methodically broken before they died. Their heads were then severed from their bodies and displayed prominently on pikes as a warning to any others who dared stand up for their natural and inalienable rights. CLR James reported that Chavanes endured his torture in stoic silence like the good soldier he was, but that Auger, whom he described as a, quote, politician first and foremost, whose gifts were unsuited for the task before him, end quote, broke down and begged for forgiveness. His cries for mercy, just like his many speeches before the National Assembly, went unheeded. From one standpoint, Vincent Auger's rebellion seems as though it were doomed to failure to begin with. As I said earlier, Auger was a politician, not a soldier, and he made a number of strategic blunders that led to his defeat. Auger's first, and most glaring mistake, was his so-called principled decision to not free and arm the slaves. Earlier, when he invoked the specter of slave revolt before the Masayat Club, it had been interpreted by them as a threat to incite the slaves to rebel. Thereafter, he was slandered in pamphlets published by the Masayat Club as a dangerous zealot who plotted to foment a slave insurrection and lead the colonies to ruin. Auger was very eager to dispel these accusations, and so he made a point of not arming the slaves, going so far as to make a note of it in his letter to the Northern Provisional Assembly on October 29th, quote, My claim is just, and I hope that you will give it your attention. I will not raise the slaves. That would be unworthy of me. Learn to appreciate the merit of a man by pure intentions. When I requested and obtained from the National Assembly a decree in favor of the American colonists formerly known by the insulting term mixed bloods, I did not include in my demands the fate of Negroes living in slavery. You and all our adversaries have tainted my actions so as to discredit me in the minds of good people. No, gentlemen, our demands only concern a class of free men who have been put under the yoke of oppression for two centuries. End quote. Had Auger been able to put aside his scruples and raised recruits from the massive slave population, he may very well have been able to overcome the disadvantages his rebel army faced by bringing sheer force of numbers to bear upon his enemies. How much different would history have looked if Auger had managed to defeat the whites on the field of battle while they were divided, still fighting amongst themselves? We may never know the answer for sure. The great irony of it is that Auger's principled refusal to arm the slaves to fight on his behalf was not something that would be imitated by his white opponents. The same whites who so brutally put down his rebellion would, as their own numbers dwindled, our massive numbers of slaves to fight their battles for them. In these early years of the revolution, as the free people of Saint-Domingue fought so viciously amongst themselves, the slaves stood back and watched. As C.L.R. James wrote, quote, The masses learn much during a revolution, end quote. And the slaves were certainly no exception to this. As they watched their masters tear each other apart, they must have seen in this moment a golden opportunity to rise up themselves and win their freedom by force. All the while, more and more slaves learned of the revolution and its ideals, and drew inspiration from them. One Sandman colonist wrote that the slaves of the colony interpreted the events in France thusly, quote, They all agreed on one principle that seems to have struck them spontaneously. 
This is that the white slaves of France had killed their masters, and now they are free, and they govern themselves and have possession of the land. End quote. C.L.R. James, and I apologize for quoting him so extensively throughout this episode, wrote that the slaves' interpretation of the revolutionary events in France was, quote, gravely inaccurate, but they had caught the spirit of the thing, liberty, equality, and fraternity, end quote. The colonists of Saint-Domingue were sitting upon a ticking time bomb, and it was only a matter of time before it went off. As the Comte de Mirabeau said of them, they were sleeping beneath Mount Vesuvius. Yet, somehow, when the slaves of Saint-Domingue did rise up in August 1791, it shocked the whole world. But that part of the story will have to wait until next time. Be sure to join us again in two weeks as the slaves of Saint-Domingue rise up en masse and win back their freedom from those who had oppressed them for three centuries. Until then, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, etc., you can send me an email at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which can be found in this episode's description. Also be sure to check out the Patreon, as I will be uploading the first bonus episode of the podcast on October 1st. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. I'm your host, Milan Connor, signing off.